when I say insurance is the original sin, it was intended for good things, but it it created very perverse incentives that once people with good business acumen came into healthcare were exploited for profit rather than for health. Elizabeth Rosenthal is a physician and journalist who is currently working as the editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News. She graduated from Harvard Medical School and completed an emergency medicine residency before she began working for the New York Times as a reporter. In 2017, she published the best-selling book titled An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back, which looks at the American healthcare system and how financial incentives have impacted it. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. Today we have a very special guest, but before we dive into that, Caleb, how has OB gotten surge treating you these days? It's good. I have my last day today, so I have my shelf coming up on Friday in a couple days, and so I'll be studying for the next few days, but surgery's been great. Saw some really cool procedures, so went well. Any plans for after your shelf? Uh, yeah, I have a CrossFit competition this weekend, so right. it right. should be fun. should be fun. Uh, doing some stuff outside of school, competing in CrossFit. So it should be good. Well, I hope you're feeling ready. I'm also feeling ready for this interview because today we have Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. Uh, Dr. Rosenthal, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, except it's pouring here in DC and 95 degrees, which is um, well, not the optimal combination, but I'm happy to be here talking to you. And so we're really interested in your story. Um, Caleb and I are both big readers. Caleb's a big writer. I've written a couple of short stories. So we're, we're really wondering, first of all, what impacted you to make the switch from, from being a clinician to becoming a journalist and an author? Yeah, it, it wasn't something I intended. Um, I'm from a family of doctors. And I so I kind of got on that train as an undergraduate of I'm going to go to medical school. Um, and uh, enjoyed it. You know, I really, well, I wouldn't say I enjoyed medical school. I enjoyed being a physician. I trained in internal medicine at uh, Cornell and then worked as an ED physician, an emergency department physician at what is now Weill Cornell Pres New York Presbyterian um, in New York. And I really enjoyed it, but um, I'd always been a writer on the side, like the two of you. I loved writing. And um, in the emergency room, even then, this was in the uh, early 90s, uh, probably maybe even before you guys were born, but it, um, you know, it was in the midst of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And so many of the problems even then I was seeing really had to do with system problems in healthcare and policy problems much more than, you know, so I could sew up a cut in the emergency room and I could, gosh, then there wasn't much you could do for HIV AIDS, but I was lucky enough to be practicing when the first antiretrovirals came into practice. So that was kind of amazing because people who I, you know, three years ago, I would have seen and known, boy, this person's not likely to be alive for another six months, we're, we're doing okay, surviving and getting better. And one of the things that um, really stuck with me from that time, the first antiretroviral AZT, which was life-saving and game-changing, it was priced at $10,000 a year, right? A year. In the early 90s. Yeah, so $750 a month. And at that price, there were editorials all over the place of, how could any drug cost that much? That's outrageous, that's unethical, it's immoral. And now, you know, 30 years later, that's what like, you know, insulin costs a month for a lot of people, it's nothing. So how our standards have changed so sticks with me. So, you know, basically what happened is now I'm gonna sound like a real dinosaur, there was something that um, politically that was going on, which was called the Clinton Health Reform Plan. And I'd been doing a bunch of freelance writing for the New York Times at that point for the New York Times Magazine. And at some point they said, well, do you wanna come on and cover this 
Clinton health plan that's coming on. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I guess, um, you know, I, 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 yeah, I think that would help a lot of the problems I'm seeing with uninsured or poorly insured people. And I was kind of naive. I thought, oh yeah, well that will pass. And then I'll go back to being a doctor. I'll write about it and that'll be a fun adventure. And basically what happened is, of course it didn't pass, right? It went nowhere. Um, uh, and I kind of got hooked on the writing part and feeling like I could treat patients one by one in an emergency room, but to, I could make more of a difference in the things I cared about by writing about them. Um, and then there were logistical things too. Like at that point, um, I, you know, I trained in internal medicine. Uh, ER medicine was becoming a specialty unto itself. And they said, well, if you want to come back and work here, you have to, you know, go do this stuff to get ER boarded. And uh, I was like, oh, you know, uh, and my second kid was born. So it was really one of those life happens things. And I always thought, yeah, I'll go back to doing medicine because I really enjoyed it. But um, one thing led to another. And then um, I was offered a foreign assignment in uh, Beijing by the New York Times. And I was like, okay. Um, so I do, I do miss it, you know, sometimes I think like that concrete feeling of actually helping a person. Um, you don't get in journalism, you know, you, you throw these writings out into the ether and hope they resonate somewhere and change someone's mind, but um, it, it's it's hard to to know. I've read your book a couple times now. Once when I first came out, I believe in 2017, if that's correct. Yeah. And then uh, when you said you would come on and speak with us, I picked it up and tried to get through as much as I could um, the second time through. And it definitely has impacted how I view healthcare, and it definitely has impacted. And what I plan to do in the future. And when I was reading it a second time, one of the things that I picked up right from the beginning is how you characterize health insurance as the original sin in healthcare. Can you talk a little bit for a minute about what you mean by that and how has that led to some of the issues that we have? Sure. Can I talk for a second about why I wrote the book and how I sure. write the book? Sure. I mentioned that the New York Times offered me a posting in Beijing and I was there for six years covering China. And then I was covering health and, uh, and environment, mostly in Europe for another five years. So I was away from the US from about 1997 to 2007, right? And when I came back, um, I had heard that US healthcare had gotten really expensive. When I left, and this may be shocking to anyone from your generation, in 1997, if you were lucky enough to have decent employer provided insurance, you basically paid nothing, your insurer paid, and it covered everything, like everything. You know, when my kids were born, I didn't, I saw a bill for like the TV in the room, but nothing else. And I had heard while I was overseas, that healthcare in the US was really changing fast and was getting really expensive. And, you know, it was kind of there in the background. And when I was covering health and environment in Europe, I'd experienced some European health systems. Um, I'm, I'm a runner and I kind of clumsy. I broke a wrist in um, Stockholm and was seen by a doctor there, you know, because it was the New York Times arranged for me to see some private orthopedist. and. He x-rayed my wrist and put on a splint and, you know, and then apologized like profusely for having to charge me $400. And I was like, so that was one data point. And my second data point was um, a few years later, I was, sounds like I had excellent adventures doing this job, which I did. You know, I was jogging in a park in Rome and um, ran into a tree and cut my head and it was a Sunday morning and I asked a friend of mine, you know, like, well, where should I go? Because I didn't really know the city. And uh, he said, well, go to Jamelli Hospital. That's where the Pope goes. And I thought, oh, okay. I'll go there <laughs> and um, got my, my, you know, eyebrows stitched up. Um, and again, you know, they were like, they did a nice job. It was 10 stitches, I think. And they said, oh, we're really sorry, but we have to charge you 
120 euros, which is like, you know, $140. So those were kind of my data points when I came back to the US. And, but I knew it had gotten expensive. And I came back to the US when I was at that magic age for colonoscopies of 50, right? So I needed my first screening colonoscopy. And I went to the HR department and I was like, I know this is, there are these in network, out of network, like, how do I get it for free? And, you know, meaning how do I get it for free to me? And they said, oh, you just have to, here's a list of in network places that do colonoscopy. And one of them was Sloan Kettering, right? Memorial Sloan Kettering, where I'd been a resident and I felt like, okay, you know, cancer screening, cancer hospital, fine, I'll go there. So I went and I was a little confused because when I was a medical student, I'd seen colonoscopies done like in doctor's offices, you know, with, with no sedation or maybe with a little sedation, but no. And at Memorial, like they were putting me, putting a wristband on, they, you know, they put me in this surgical stuff and they wheeled me into like basically an operating room. And there were like all these people in scrubs and an anesthesiologist. And I was like, whoa, what's going on here? But, you know, I got my shot of propofol and, you know, all was great for a few hours. And I woke up and, you know, didn't really think much of it. Um, I had a clean bill of colon health. And then like a month later, I got the explanation of benefits. And that colonoscopy had been billed at like $12,000. And my insurer, you know, one of those chirpy insurer notes said, good news, we we fought on your behalf and we only paid like 9,000. And I'm like, that's a crazy amount of money to pay for a colonoscopy. And I looked at the bill and I saw that the, the biggest thing on the bill was like a $6,000 facility fee for a facility, you know, an operating room at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital that was totally unnecessary for my simple procedure. And I just thought, what is this thing called a facility fee? So anyway, when I came back to, to, to New York, to the mothership, they, they were like, well, you, you know, we want you covering healthcare. And it was kind of early, you know, talking about the ACA. And I said, you know, I don't want to cover that. I want to know why, that, why how things have gotten so expensive. And so the, um, the guy who's now the executive editor, uh, Dean Becquet, who was wonderful, he said, okay, you can do that. And I, so I did a series called Paying Till It Hurts that lasted for two years. And, um, you know, we focused on all, this is the wonderful thing about being a journalist is you get to understand all the things that don't make any sense to you, you know? So we looked at all these common procedures like getting stitches in the emergency room, um, you know, getting a, um, an, a screening echo for, uh, surgery, like why it costs so much in this country compared to the rest of the world, you know, asthma inhalers, which I've been on albuterol my entire life. When I left for China, it was cheap. And when I got back, even though it was long off patent, it was like 10 times more expensive. It just like didn't make any sense. So um, I did that series for two years. And I understood how the bills got so expensive in American healthcare, how we unbundled things, how business had kind of taken over healthcare in terms of it, the, the um, revenue cycle management is, I guess what the official name is for it is that, which didn't exist when I was a doctor um, or when I was practicing. But I didn't understand like, how did we get this thing called a facility fee? Because if you call people doing colonoscopies in Europe, as I did, for, because I started this series, of course, with colonoscopies, much to the horror of the photo editor at the New York Times, like, how are we going <laughs> to illustrate that on the front page? Um, they, they'll say, like, what do you mean facility fee? And I'm like, you know, the, the, the fee for the room that you do the colonoscopy in. And they're like, you can't do a colonoscopy without a room. That's just like part of the deal. So, um, uh, you know, that kind of set me off into like trying to understand how we got to this crazy place we are today. So 
Now to your question, <laughs> the original sin of insurance, and people often misinterpret that as me saying that insurance is bad. I don't think it's bad. I think it's necessary. Um, I think it's most of the insurance options we have now are pretty crappy, frankly, um, and, and uh, leave patients extremely vulnerable now that we're in the world of high deductibles and co-insurance and co-pays. But, um, you know, what it did without meaning to is that it kind of separated the consumer from the actual price. So patients um, and companies became very price insensitive because it felt like no one was really paying. Like, did I really care that my colonoscopy cost $9,000? Yeah, because I'm I'm a total nut and a wonk, but most people would just look at that bottom line, which says, you know, and your your contribution zero and would go, phew, that's great. You know, I don't care. And um, so it's separated if we want to believe that patients should be consumers or viewed as consumers, which is the current line of kind of mindset of American healthcare, I mean, which I would argue against, but if we want to go that route, um, then they need to feel the price in a reasonable way. They have to be able to make choices based on seeing that price. And they have to be shielded from situations where there really isn't a choice, um, which are many in healthcare, right? And none of those conditions exist. So when I say insurance is the original sin, it was intended for good things, but it, it created very perverse incentives that once people with good business acumen came into healthcare were exploited for profit rather than for health. You talked about how insurance separated the, the consumer, the patient from what actually the more the money is actually moving yeah. around behind the scenes um but what about things like concierge medicine or direct primary care where you pay a flat rate and you're receiving different treatments but you're not you're still not really like understanding the cost of what you're getting but you are closer to paying for something as the consumer i just want to get your two cents on that yeah you know there have been a lot of a lot of kind of efforts to work around this problem. Um, and I think they're all flawed in some, they're all helpful in some ways and flawed in others. So, you know, you mentioned too, the first one that comes up though is, is this idea of, you know, having co-insurance and co-pays so people have skin in the game, right? But if your co-insurance is 20% of a, you know, $17,000 ER bill, and you're out $3,400 for, you know, a COVID screen, which we've gotten bills like that. That's not skin in the game. That's, you know, that's like, I think I say in the book, it's like having a kidney in the game. And, you know, and you, you don't even know that price in advance. So you can't walk away and go, oh, I'm just going to go elsewhere. You're, it's as if, you know, you said to a contractor, like, you know, redo my kitchen, and you only found out after it was done that he was charging $200,000 and you were expected to pay, you know. So, um, you know, other efforts to kind of try and work around this concierge medicine, um, direct primary care, uh, you know, they, they have certain advantages, um, but they're really for people who can pay for them, right? Um, and we see a lot of practices converting to concierge. And, you know, a patient who's been there for, for 20 years will suddenly be told, oh, if you want to keep coming to our practice, you have to pay $2,000 for, for a concierge fee. Otherwise, go find someone else. And when they say, or, or they'll say, oh, you can stay in our practice, but it's a different level of care. And, and, you know, when I say like, well, what do you get for concierge? 
they'll say, oh, well, my doctor will call me back within 24 hours and he'll come by and see me or he or she, it's terrible that I'm doing this, will come by and see me in the hospital. And I'm like, my doctor does that for free, you know, not, not for free, but that's what doctors do, you know? So I think it, it, it leads to this kind of very tiered approach to medicine. And do you want to be the person who gets a call back in a week rather than a day? Of course not. It puts patients in a very, who, who don't have means in a very difficult position. If you have the means, sure, it works great. Um, the DPC movement likewise can be, you know, it can work for um, many people for many things, but you can also get pretty badly stuck out in the sense of, you know, for ordinary primary care, it works pretty great, right? You, they have their own labs, they'll send you to smart, you know, to, to cost-effective labs, They'll get you cost-effective x-rays. They have contracts for things like that. But what happens, for example, where I've seen people get caught out is, okay, you know, you have a sinus infection that's not getting better and you need, and you need to be scoped. So you need an ENT. Then you're on your own. Like there are limits to what the DPC universe is. And if you're in a DPC world, you may not, and, and you know, getting, um, getting a, la, la, what's it called? It's like how long it's been, so laryngo, laryngo, laryngoscope. Laryngo, <laughs> you know, getting a laryngoscope put down in a doctor's office is often billed, you know, two to $5,000. And if you have, you're, if you're combining DPC with a high deductible plan, which is a common combo, you're out $5,000 for something that, you know, why does it cost that much? Because it's legal and because people can, and because insurers, if you don't have a high deductible plan, will often pay $1,000 for that. But, you know, um, so there, there are, to me, there are flaws in every solution. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't exist, but it means the patients really, they need to have this crazy level of understanding of all these different options, which, you know, I kind of get after, you know, 30 years of writing about this stuff, but I don't know how the average mortal is expected, you know, without a PhD in health systems or um, is expected to navigate this. And of course, in, in, in the DPC world, in the concierge world, there are, there are some really good people who do this and will take on you know, a much bigger role and responsibility. And there are others who, who won't, who will say, you know, sorry, this is, you know, I, it, you, you were healthy last year and it worked out great this year. You need something that I can't arrange for you and good luck. <laughs> so you mentioned the expenses that hospitals and physicians are charging now for procedures. And it often like the term is strategic billing that, that physicians will use to charge for different procedures and different items. And I wanted to ask you about salary-based physician payment versus physicians who are getting paid based on the procedures and the tests that they run. Because a lot of, I guess, how I understand it is that if you're paid based on what you do, then you are more likely to strategically bill or to do more procedures in order to generate revenue for yourself. But if you're salary-based paid, then potentially you could be less likely to overtreat and to overcharge. Is that kind of what you see or is there still a problem even with salary-based physicians? Well, you know, when I was a physician, I was totally on a flat salary. And the, so, sure, if you're salary-based, there's much less incentive and much less pressure, too. I mean, what I hear from some people, some docs who are salary-based um, or who, who, who are, have, have watched this evolve is even if they're salary-based, they're getting reports, you know, every week about how many RVUs they're billing and 
you know, with the implication that billing more RVUs is a good thing rather than, you know, or they're being sent to, um, to school to learn to bill better, you know, and I, I had one pediatrician who I interviewed in the, for the book who was like, yeah, and they would, you know, we'd go to these billing classes and they'd say like, well, if you'd only listen to this kid's lungs, you know, you could have billed for a level four visit. And he was like, yeah, but the kid had a hurt ankle. Like I had, there was no reason, but the reason to, to do that was for billing. And he, even though he was initially salary-based, he said there was incredible pressure to, to bill more. And eventually the salary base became salary base plus um, incentives for revenue generated. So you, there was this huge differential between the salary-based doctors who didn't order a lot of stuff and the salary-based doctors who did. So I think, you know, I, I would prefer a flat salary base, but because um, I think it incentivizes the right kind of care, but that isn't the norm these days, even at hospitals that mostly are salary, are salary based, there are, there are all these incentives and pressures to, to build that don't come from the physician side, they come from often the, the C-suite and the billing side, you know, that has very different goals, right? The goals of the physician force workforce on the whole and the nursing workforce is to deliver, to deliver good care to patients in the most responsible way possible. The goals of the business side of healthcare is often to generate revenue. And, you know, they're very different kinds of goals. And I, you know, when I was practicing medicine, hospitals were terribly run places. So it's not that there didn't need to be some, someone to come in to say, like, you could do this more efficiently. There were a lot of economies of scale that weren't being um, taken advantage of. But at some point while I was away, it flipped to, you know, when I was practicing, healthcare was always on the front burner and the, the financing stuff on the back burner. I think the HMO movement in the 90s, which put a lot of financial pressure on hospitals, made them kind of say, wait, we need to get smarter about the business of medicine. And they almost you know, they hired a lot of financial consultants and consulting firms to teach them about strategic billing and unbundling and upcharging and all this stuff because it was legal, you know, whether it was right or not was not part of their, their issue. And, um, and so the business of medicine kind of moved to the front burner and the healthcare of medicine moved to the back burner. And that's what upset me about the book. Like I know healthcare has to be, you know, you, you got to make a certain amount of money to, to run a hospital or an office. You know, I fully believe that physicians should be paid well, they work hard, um, uh, you know, um, but they are not generally where the money is going right now as a whole. You know, it's um, when I hear from young physicians, it's almost like, and, and also from people from my generation who are just family practice doctors trying to make ends meet who have no negotiating power against the insurers. They're, they, they're, it almost sounds kind of Marxist, you know, we're the labor and yet, you know, we're, we're being exploited and, and they're right, you know? Um, so, you know, I hope, I hope that rebalancing will happen um, from your generation. I want to go back to those billing classes that you mentioned and you brought up the example of the kid who came in with a sprained ankle but if you would listen to their lungs you could bill them for like a level four visit which i'm assuming is something more 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 expensive right yeah. because there's yeah. more serious so that seems in a way kind of like over diagnosing a patient because you're you're finding something that that they that they didn't come in for right yeah. and so this kind of gets me to think about when 
when now that genomic sequencing is becoming a little more commonplace, people want to get their gene sequence. And there's actually a study that came out recently saying that people who get their gene sequence would like to know the information outside of what they had originally got their gene sequence for, assuming they did some whole genome sequencing. Yeah. And so couldn't that then, like, if they find a specific risk allele for a very rare disease that requires, you know, treatments with, you know, like a drug like Zolgemza, isn't that kind of digging a, a way to game the system in a way to, like, make everything a level four billing situation? Well, I, I think, you know, that's actually... It's gotten worse than that, though, because that's actually finding something that's real. Um, I, I don't, I, we, we at uh, Kaiser Health News and NPR and CBS this morning do this project called Bill of the Month, which I would encourage, you know, all, all um, young doctors and uh, medical students to look at because, you know, these bills are often generated from whole cloth. I mean, I've never seen a bill that we've gotten that was a level three or below ER visit. They don't exist. You know, everything is just automatically billed level three or level four. Now, you know, getting a COVID test, the swab put up your nose, level four. Why? Because the insurer isn't sitting in the, you know, they don't care, you know, they'll just, they'll accept it and pay because, you know, this is one of the great false narratives that patients have that like, well, I've got good insurance and my insurer's in my corner. And I'm like, no, they're not. They, they take in premiums and pay out claims and they don't know what happened in, in that urgent care visit or that ER visit that all that happened is a physician assistant came and put a swab up your nose. They just believe it. It was a level four visit. Oh, some stuff must have happened, you know, and um, it's easier for them to pay than to investigate. So, you know, the example, yes, there's a lot of searching for stuff that, um, will generate revenue, whether it will become a medical problem or not. Um, we recently got a tip for a little exam, as just a little example. You know, there are many states that now require newborn hearing tests, um, right? Um, a lot of newborns have fluid in their ears from, uh, you know, from the being born. And, um, there are companies that will say, oh, no, you know, your, your newborn's hearing test was a little funky. You need this $2,000 souped up hearing test. You know, it, it, it's just, um, it's creating a, a problem that they know probably isn't there, but it's a good revenue model, right? Mm -hmm. It's bad medicine, but it's good business so, or good for business. And I think what you're talking about is that kind of, you know, do we go looking for problems that we don't know if they're going to cause an issue? And you could even look at, for example, you know, the amazing new drugs for um, hepatitis C, to cure hepatitis C. When they say, when people said, well, why are you pricing them at, you know, initially it was, I think, $86,000 for a course of treatment, six-week course of treatment. The answer from the drug maker would be, well, because, you know, think how cheap that is compared to a liver transplant. Okay, most people with hepatitis C don't need a liver transplant. Many don't even know they're infected, right, and will never have a problem with hepatitis C. But now there's massive screening for hep C going on like everyone in my age group is you better get screened for hep c because then you can take this now i mean they've dropped the price a little i think it's you know fifty thousand dollar course of treatment to avoid something that may or may not ever have happened now that doesn't mean that it's bad to screen for hep c um it means to me that maybe the price of the treatment shouldn't be determined by the price of a liver transplant, but a much more complex formula that says, what is the likelihood that the average person who 
has chronic epsi will ever develop problems with it and the price would be much lower it sounds, of, a lot. What? So I say, it sounds a lot like when you go to rent a car they're like oh you can pay you know fifty dollars to protect yourself from a ten thousand dollar fee if you get the smallest scratch on the side yeah and and you know um Part of the problem, too, is when you do this, try and price things according to this cost-benefit analysis and what the alternative costs are, you know, we're comparing them to hospital costs in the U.S., which are astronomical. So, you know, sure, you know, compared to a, a liver transplant, which probably ends up being, you know, a million, a million five, you can charge a lot for a drug. It, compared to a liver transplant in another country, which would be a lot cheaper. Um, that doesn't make sense, but we have no way, you know, in the UK, for example, in the NHS, they have a, a, um, a thing called NICE that does cost benefit analysis for new drugs. And they set the price that um, they're willing to pay in the US, in, in the UK, depending on that. Um, we don't have that. So, you know, and, and the costs here are so high that you can charge an awful lot for drugs and still make them look, the cost, make the cost benefit analysis look good. So it isn't like people want to say, oh, pharma's bad, you know, the PBMs are bad, the hospitals, insurers are bad. It's the way the system interacts with itself that creates the problem. I don't think there's one bad guy there are many bad guys you know and there are many good guys too but but um the good guys aren't the ones that control the system most of the time in most places you brought up other healthcare systems and when you're talking about hepatitis uh, i i couldn't help but think of the commercials that I, that you see you know have you been screened for hepatitis and all, all the commercials and trying to get people to to go get tested and then potentially get treated. And I know that's one thing that's very unique to the US uh, as opposed to other countries and that drugs can market on TV and they can market different places. And you brought up a couple other things that are different in other countries. So I wanna ask you, what are some other countries doing to better align the healthcare around quality and cost effectiveness than the US? Yeah, I think, you know, we've relied on the market to do that. And it's a very broken market. So, you know, there, of course, is, you know, there's, there's a, um, you know, just to give you a, a little example in Germany and Japan, for example, new devices and drugs can come on the market at a relatively high price. But again, there is this cost and that, like, is this thing so good and so new that it does we that we want to pay? And this is not we. These are not net. Well, in Germany, not a national health system. It's a system with insurers that insurers should pay this high price for it. And sometimes they'll say yes, it is. But after that, as that product ages, or they'll say the price has to go down. What we often see in the U.S. is as, as drugs age, their price will go up, which makes no sense uh, whatsoever, you know, and it's just, it's a market decision um, and competition doesn't work very well. You know, in theory, when I was practicing, there would be a bunch of generic drug makers who would lower the cost of drugs once they became generic. Now, you know, if everyone is making great money selling digoxin for 50 bucks a pill, why would you, why would you start a price war? You know, there's just no, you, everyone's happy. I mean, everyone being, you know, the, the three companies that make it. And um, so, you, you know, why do prices go up? It's because we have a phenomenon here called sticky pricing, where instead of having price wars, um, you know, hospitals, neither of you are in California, right? You know, we, you know, Sutter um, was a very high priced, is a very high priced system in 
California, but basically it's given cover to all the other systems to raise their prices to that level or close to that level. Cause they're like, well, look, they're, you know, they're getting a hundred thousand for a knee replacement. Why let's, let's, you know, why should we do it for 32,000? Let's, let's up our prices. And um, it works, you know, there's very little price competition. And the sad thing, you know, which we're writing about right now is a lot of the older drugs, you know, drug makers turn backflips to, to prevent their drugs from going off patent. But when there is price competition and when prices go down, there are a lot of old effective drugs that are just not made by US drug makers, generic or brand anymore, because you know it's more profitable to make other things. And you can just say, we don't want to make it anymore. I don't know if you know the one example in the book was compazine, which was like a mainstay when I was in the ER. You know, now now there's Zofran. So why not pay, you know, 10 times more for the same thing? Um, my one of my kids is on Keppra, which is or the generic of Keppra for seizure disorder. Um, you know that went gen, that went generic in I think about 2010. Um, it's really hard to find now because it's just not profitable. Like this kid has to go, you know, is now a 20 something and has to kind of, search pharmacy to pharmacy to see if anyone has generic or brand kept, I mean, brand Kepra around. Um, and this is for a seizure disorder. You have to take it. Otherwise you have seizures, you know? So that, that shocks me because of the amount of patients that I've seen already that are on Kepra. Yeah. It's one of, it's, it's like the seventh most prescribed drug, but talk to patients who are on it and they're like, they're searching. It's like a crazy search to find who, who, who has Kepra, you know, um, because it's just not, you know, there, there are more profitable ways to make money now. So you, you mentioned that there's not one bad person or uh, like a scapegoat that we can blame this on. And our podcast is specifically focusing on inspiring and educating the next generation of medical leaders. And we wanted to get your opinion. What can these next generation of medical leaders, people in, you know, mine and Caleb's shoes, what can we do to help cure the this American sickness? Well, <laughs> that's, that's a great question. Because I feel like my generation of physicians, you know, uh, they were asleep at the wheel and they, they you know, uh, my, my peers, they didn't go into medicine because they wanted to think about business. They didn't they went into a very different world. And in some way, it tended to attract people who wanted to practice on themselves, to have a lot of independence, who, who you know, didn't want to deal with bureaucracies, paperwork. And so as this stuff was happening, they grumbled a lot, but they didn't do very much about it. You know, they kind of caved because they're like, oh, I didn't become a doctor to get into politics, or I didn't become a physician to like go to hospital board meetings. You know, I became a physician to see my patients. And I think what they've real some have realized too late in many cases is that 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 leads uh, that leaves other people who are not caring about the healthcare to drive the ship. Right. So um, I had a wonderful talk with a, a retiring surgeon who said his aha moment was like, um, you know, a patient came to him and he thought he'd done a great thing by taking out a ruptured appendix. And the patient came for follow up and said, you know, uh, you know, thanks. I feel much better, but I've got this twenty five thousand dollar bill I can't afford. And he said, I realized I'd saved his life and, you know, bankrupted his family. And so I think, you know, your generation, from what I've seen, is not waiting for that kind of aha moment and is much more engaged and politically engaged and willing to be active, you know, whether it's, um, you know, getting the physicians at your hospital together and 
marching into the billing office. And so, I mean, physicians, you know, if physicians don't bring in patients, these hospitals are nothing, right? <laughs> you're the labor, you're the, the, the people who attract the patients. Um, so I, I think they need to get more unified and have a voice and say, you know, I hear over and over again from physicians at hospitals saying, I want to know how much the hospital is billing for an MRI when I order it, but they won't tell me. I'm like, what do you mean they won't tell you? That's say, I won't order the MRI, you know, from, I, I think physicians should demand to have a seat at the table in the way hospitals are billing, in how they're suing patients, whether they're sending them to collections. You know, my generation had more of a like, you know, blinders, like I didn't, I don't want to deal with this stuff until it comes back to haunt them where you're sitting across from a patient who doesn't know the billing administrator, but knows you and, and says like, how could this happen? And so I think it's about changing the balance of power in hospitals and in uh, healthcare organizations so that they refocus on what's important to, to the medicine. And, um, you know, that's hard. This surgeon kind of amusingly said, you know, when he was getting ready to retire, he said like, what's the worst they can do? Take away my parking space, you know? <laughs> but, um, you know, he was kind of a rabble rouser and he came around to the idea of supporting Medicare for all. Others will not, will come around to different solutions. I don't think that's necessary, but I guess I would say young physicians need to take back healthcare for the healthcare professionals and take it out of the hands of the business professionals. Peter and I always end our interviews with a question. And as a journalist and author, I'm sure you've scoured more literature that we can, than we can dream of reading. Um, but we always like to ask our, our people that are on the show what some books they would suggest for medical leaders and those that are looking towards leadership and looking towards medicine in the future. Oh boy, that's, that's hard. You know, um, you know, I, 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 of course, like my book. <laughs> that's, that's Yes. And I, I would definitely suggest that to everyone. Uh, yes. Mar Marty Macquery has written a, an interesting book called The Price We Pay, which is a good book. I, I think um, Eric Topol has written some interesting stuff about the role of um, better utilizing um, medical technology to reduce healthcare costs rather than increase them. Um, Robert Robert Pearl, who used to be head of the uh, Kaiser Permanent or the Permanente Physicians Group, um, has has done a lot of interesting thinking about using tech and collaboration between different players in healthcare to make healthcare cheaper and more patient-centered. Um, uh, and they've so all those 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 three have written really interesting books. I I I feel like to some extent, and this is probably a little controversial to say this, people who are working within the system, to me, maybe it's, they're more realistic than I am, but I sometimes feel they have a, a slightly limited capacity to imagine it functioning really differently. Um, so they accept certain things as just like, inevitable like facility fees, like that's the Newton's law of physics. And I'm like, it's not the Newton's law of physics. You know, they, these don't have to exist. You can do bundled care. Um, and, um, you know, I'll, so I think um, uh, Josh Sharfstein, um, who used to be the health commissioner of uh, Maryland has written some really interesting stuff. I would encourage everyone just a little less anecdote. I, I had a, 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 a kind of moderate head injury uh, about a year and a half ago. And um, people 
people, as I was kind of getting better friends would joke, oh, well, now you can write about your own bills. And I was like, well, actually I got my care because I live in DC at the edge of Maryland. I got my care at Hopkins and Maryland is an is the one state that has, that sets hospital rates. So mm -hmm. I'm like, all my bills were completely reasonable, you know, it, and you know, a lot of the hospitals and pharma companies will go, oh, you know, we can't, we wouldn't be able to exist under a rate setting. And I'm like, Hopkins is doing just fine. University of Maryland is doing just fine, you know? Um, and I will tell you, because I had to have some second opinions at hospitals not in Maryland, um, a physician visit that cost $350 at Hopkins was billed at $1,700 at a hospital in um, another state, which I will not name, but um, you know, uh, likewise, uh, uh, an LP, which I had to have at some point, I had two, one at Hopkins was about $1,000 done in a procedure room. One at another hospital was done basically um, by interventional radiology in a procedure suite with a nice big facility fee, you know, for many, many times. Like, was that necessary? No, but um, was it good for revenue? Yes. So, you know, the Maryland model, which has been going on for decades now is pretty interesting. And I, I, I don't quite understand how it came to be or why it's persisted without a lot of protests from physicians who work under it, but um, you know, it, 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 there are ways, you know, this is not like, it isn't like defying, you know, a law of physics. This is something that has evolved that we have allowed to evolve and it's something we can unravel and take back. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm, I thoroughly enjoyed this interview and, and learned a lot. Caleb, what about you? Yeah, me as well. Thank you so much. We really appreciate I it. Too much, but um, <laughs> oh, I, hope, great. I hope it's helpful. And if there's anything I can do in the future and, you know, help you, uh, um, you know, in your, your uh, quest to take it back, let me know. <laughs>